Hello and welcome to A Sporting Discussion, your podcast that discusses sports of all sorts. I am Andrew Donison and I am joined by a man that is covered head to toe in Canberra Raiders attire, AJ Mithen. Hello. What bandwagon? No, there is no You're bandwagon. You're in a green t-shirt too, my friend. There is absolutely no Canberra Raiders bandwagon in the Mythen household. Eight in a row. Eight in a row. In this week's episode, we will look at an Olympic review, a fearless, honest and upfront assessment of Australia's triumphant domination of the Rio Games. Triumphant domination. Yeah. I thought we were brilliant. Okay, uh, we will look at what on earth is going on with the Wallabies with special guest Brett McKay from theraw.com.au and ABC Grandstand. We'll look at your consistent performers and we have a little bit of social media interaction to get through as well. As we always say, a discussion is two ways, us here at ASD Stadium and you, the listeners. Make sure you get in contact with us via Twitter at ASD underscore podcast or facebook.com slash a sporting discussion so we can make sure we are talking about issues that are of interest to you. Andrew, let's have a look at some confirmations and corrections and unfortunately this week we don't get to play your excitable music. Banger. Banger. Damn it. Yes, because I need to apologise for rugby fans out there when last week I said Drew Mitchell would be playing for the Wallabies. Obviously, everyone out there knew I meant Adam Ashley Cooper. I thought you meant Sam Norton Knight. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez, he'd be excited. I would like... Another rugby hyphen, what a shock. I know. I would like to apologise to a man who has... Many pronunciations of his name. I, I said Abebe Bikala. We've heard Abebe Bikala, uh, Ebebe Bikala. So the Ethiopian marathoner, you're a champion. We apologise for not knowing exactly how to say your name. And you know what? Let's just do a... Uh, Let's have a blanket one. A blanket apology, uh, a retrospective and prospective apology. <laughs> Yes, we, we will get them wrong and, and, and we're okay with that because we know who we're talking about and we love all the sports people <laughs> that we talk about. That's all for the confirmations and corrections. We will move into the topical recap proudly brought to you by Ultimate AFL Trivia. Search for them on Facebook to get daily AFL-related trivia questions. They also run trivia nights. There's upcoming nights in Adelaide on September the 14th and Melbourne on September the 15th. And Ultimate AFL Trivia can also come along to your sporting club to run an AFL-themed trivia night. Anywhere in Australia. That is right. The first thing that we're going to do is look back at something that we talked about last week, which was consistent performers. That is correct. We thank Erin Delahunty, friend of the show, uh, journalist Erin Delahunty, who gave us the idea on our facebook.com slash a sporting discussion page. Uh, do you want to kick us off, Andrew, or how so do you want to do this? Erin talked about the Australian netball diamonds, and AJ mentioned last week how they rarely fail on the big stage, and basically since the late 90s, they've won four or five Netball World Cups, and the only loss was two goals. They've won three of five Commonwealth Games, the two losses by seven goals in total. And the Constellation Cup series between Australia and New Zealand, Australia have won five of the last six. That's consistent. (laughs) Consistent. Now, just before we move on, I forgot this in confirmations and corrections. Oh, no. Now, this one's in particular for Aaron Delahunty because last week when I was talking about the Australian Diamonds, I said their only loss was by two points. 
and I know that it's his two goals. I oh. knew that. I knew that at the time. Please don't get angry, netball crowd. Uh, send your emails to. <laughs> well, we don't have an email address, so just tweet us. Tweet your anger at me. Thank you, AJ. One of mine was that that I presented or submitted was squash player Heather McKay. She dominated women's squash in the 60s and 70s. She lost two matches early in her career and then spent the next 20 years not losing a match. She won... (laughs) 20? Yep, she won... So she only lost two matches for her entire career. Yep. Wow, she won incredible. 16 consecutive British Opens, which are basically (laughs) considered the World Championships. So that's consistent performance. Wow. What have you got? We'll pay that. I didn't know that. I'm going to go to the basketball court and uh, talk about my San Antonio Spurs. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was a bit indulgent. That's all right. Here we go. Now, they've made the playoffs in 24 of the last 25 seasons. They've missed the playoffs four times since they entered the NBA, and that's 38, 39 years ago. Consistent. Tim Duncan, the big fundamental who recently retired, played 19 seasons and never missed the playoffs. That's consistent. <laughs> Pretty useful. <laughs> uh, now, this one I like, and it'll take a little bit of explaining, so bear with me. They've played 17 consecutive seasons where they've won 50 or more games during a season, and season's 82 games long. Okay, pretty now, good. The last time they didn't win 50 games was in 1998-99, when there was an industrial dispute and the season was shortened to exactly 50 games. And in those 50 games, they went 37 and 13. And then they won enough games in the final. So they, they won the championship that year and they ended up winning 48 games <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and uh, just to top it off, they have a winning head-to-head regular season record against every active NBA franchise. Wow. <laughs> so that's good. Yeah, consistent. Consistently yeah, good. Consistently good. Another one that we got sent in is a 10,000-meter runner, Hale Gabrisalesi. Yep. Well, well pronounced. Thank you. <laughs> 1992 won gold at the Junior World Championships and then from there progressed to the you know, Senior World Championships and won gold at the 1993, 95, 97, 99 World Championships. Bronze at 2001 and silver at 2003. Combine that with... 1996, gold at the Olympics. 2000, gold at the Olympics. 2004, fifth at the Olympics. 2008, sixth at the Olympics. It's consistent enough. How do you go in marathons, though? Won nine marathons oh, from just 2005. Only, only nine. Yeah. <laughs> from 2005 <laughs> to 2010. Nine marathons in five years. Six yep. years. Yep. Wow. I know. That's not bad. All right. So, Hail well Gabriel Salesi. Well done. Consistent performer. AJ. Yeah. Got a good one here. Um, and it's uh, point oh, relevant, not poignant. <laughs> Maybe it's poignant after last Saturday's debacle. But oh, yes. we're going to talk to Brett McKay from uh, the Raw.com.au and ABC Grandstand a little bit uh, later in the episode. So, what better way to look at consistent uh, top of the line elite performance than to talk about the All Blacks, uh, who <laughs> they've played five hundred and forty-two games and they've won four hundred and seventeen of them. That's a lot. Seventy-seven percent rounded off. Uh, their all-time points record. They're, they're almost 7,500 points ahead of points scored against points conceded. 14,504, <laughs> 7,000 against. Against the Wallabies, they've won 107, lost 42, and had seven draws. If that's not total, complete, and utter domination, I don't know what is. It is. That's but certainly domination. My favourite part about that stat, though, is that 
in games between the All Blacks and the Wallabies, mm-hmm. uh, the for and against, New Zealand are over a thousand points ahead of the Wallabies. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. Now, one interesting one. Uh, the British and Irish Lions tour is a combined uh, side from England, Ireland. It's like uh, the best Scotland, of. The best of. And they are an incredibly difficult team to beat. Mm-hmm. Um, they get tour around the world. They get massive crowds. Everyone tries to come out and against them. So I thought surely the All Blacks have had a tough run against the... Uh, English and the British and Irish Lions. You'd think so. You'd think so. They've played 38 games, won 29 of them. <laughs> <laughs> And and they've had six, uh, three draws, so they've only lost six. Wow! So <laughs> that is that's not consistently good. That's consistently excellent. That's, that's almost up there with the Australian Diamonds netball team. They're the Heather Mackay of world rugby. They are. <laughs> um, where are, there's a few more here. Three-time world champions out of eight World Cups that have been held. They've won the rugby championship thirteen times out of nineteen. World Rugby Team of the Year seven times since 2005, since the introduction of the world rankings. They've held the number one ranking longer than any other team combined. <laughs> right. Where do we, wow. There's a lot of stuff here. I'm not going to read all of it. I'll just say I'll get, we're going into week two of the Bledisloe Cup this weekend. So they might uh, build on that thousand-point differential. Build on that thousand-point differential. The Bledisloe Cup, New Zealand have held it 43 times. Australia have held it twice. The longest time Australia have held it is five years, which was five titles. Yep. And the longest, the longest time New Zealand have held it was 28 years. Oh, God. <laughs> so yeah, maybe we should go into games against New Zealand with a little later, uh, lower expectations. You'd think so. And one, one last one, a cheeky one from at La Tigre Auto. Harlem Globetrotters and Washington Generals. <laughs> Talk of domination. Oh, yeah. The Globetrotters' all-time record, approximately 24,000 wins and 330 losses. <laughs> they went 3,113 wins throughout the 80s. I and think that's in let a me row. say, Let me say that's in the, from, in the decade of the 1980s, the Harlem Globetrotters went 3,113 wins and zero losses, undefeated for the decade. Amazing. <laughs> And their their current opponents, the Generals, six wins and over 13,000 losses. All of them. They were right in all of them until the end, though. I know. Right up until five Globetrotters bounced the ball off the back alley-oop to each other (laughs) and the last guy dunked it for the win. Who would have dunked it? Stiff. AJ, yesterday evening when you were in some clandestine meeting with Brad Scott of the North Melbourne Football Club, I'm not sure what that was all about. Well, I think it went well. Haven't heard much about that today. Well, it went well. You know, yeah. we had we both uh, voiced our opinions and we'll see who came out on top. Whilst you were doing that, I was lucky enough to have a chat with Brett McKay from theraw.com.au and ABC Grandstand about the fortunes, misfortunes, failings of the Australian Wallabies rugby union team. Uh, yeah. When we spoke to Brett a few weeks ago, uh, we said we'd get him back. Uh, this was after the June test against England. We said we'd bring him back after the when the rugby championship started uh, so that we could see how we were going against well, more international opposition. And it wasn't good. It, it wasn't. So let's have a listen and everyone enjoy. 
The last time that we spoke to Brett McKay on a sporting discussion was in the wake of Australia's 3-0 loss to the English, where the issues were that they lost the physicality stakes, they lost at the breakdown, they lost at the set pieces, they had ball security issues, and the conclusion was that going to there was go, they were going to have to completely rethink things for the rugby championship. The rugby championship kicked off on the weekend. Brett, welcome. Did we see yeah, all of those thanks, things? Thanks, did, did we see all of those things happen again? <laughs> yeah, we we did. And, and when you peel them off back like that, it's, it sort of makes you wonder what on earth they've been working on for the last month, doesn't it? It's, uh, they they did all of that again, and and worst of all, they did it against the best team in the world, who are the you know the, the best team in the world for a reason, and they're the best team at punishing those sorts of mistakes. And uh, and we saw that very early on on, uh, on Saturday night against the All Blacks and it, uh, it made for fairly uncomfortable viewing from, uh, from close quarters as I was. And the first half in particular, New Zealand had 66% of the possession. They had 71% time in the opposition half and they were ahead 32-3. It- yeah, yeah, and, and, and had... One try disallowed by that point and maybe had another couple of opportunities as well. So it really could have been, you know, properly ugly at halftime if they'd, if they'd had a few things go their way. Um, we were a little bit surprised at halftime that it was only 70% territory because it just felt like the Wallabies didn't have any ball on the other side of halfway at all. Yeah, right. So, uh, yeah, it, it, felt, it felt very one-sided from very early on in the contest. And, and uh, yeah, you, you just had that feeling from the, the 15 to 20-minute 20 mark, mark that it was just going to be ugly. And, uh, and unfortunately, that's exactly how it played out. I think the, the best thing to do to sort of to start to, to analyse what went wrong is to go back to, I guess, the, the start. And there were, I think there were eight changes in the on-field starting lineup from the, the previous test against England. And... There was a, you know, I think it was actually a stated aim that they were going to to kick more. They picked a team to to do that, but the kicking was probably one of the the poorer parts of the game. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. And, and you and you're right. It was there was eight changes in the starting side from that last tense test against England, and a complete new bench as well. So, yeah, you're talking, you know, fifteen positional changes and selection changes within you know, within 23 players from test to test. But then what made it sort of – what added a little bit more of intrigue to it was that the side that played on Saturday night, 13 of them played in the, in the Rugby World Cup final. So it was sort of, to use the famous Veep line, it was continuity with change. That makes <laughs> any, any possible sense. So, um, But you're right, it didn't seem to make any any difference at all. Uh, and, and you would think that with that many changes that, 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 that it would have a – an impact on the way they were going to do things, but it was exactly the same problem um, as we said at the top from uh, the, the, what brought them undone against England. And uh, and yeah, kicking as you say was um, it, well, it wasn't even second rate, Andrew. It was um, you know it, it was several levels below that I'd say. And and uh, and there were so many so many occasions where the Wallabies were trying to, especially in that first half, were trying to kick out of their own you know, 22 or even closer to their own try line. And, and the Wallabies, the All Blacks are running it back to them already inside the Wallabies' half. So, mm. you know, you no wonder the territory stat was as one-sided as it, as it was in that first half. And, uh, yeah, there was – I mean, there's so many issues and, and it's 
you know, when they mount like that, when the scoreline's as one-sided and as ugly as it was, it sort of it becomes a bit of an issue if it's hard to know where to start addressing the, the, you know, exactly everything that went wrong. That's right, and, and that leads into the, one of the, the articles that, uh, that you've written this week. What is it? There's, there's 99 problems, but three need to be fixed. Yeah. And, and it's, it's that, that old coach's philosophy of, you know, you can change as much as, as you want, but the good coaches, they'll, they'll look at three things they can change and, and they'll focus on that. It, is that going to be enough or, or, I guess, you know, what are the, the three things in your mind and, yeah, is that going to be enough? Yeah, and that's, that's going to be the, the $64 question. That, that whole concept was, um, was a line Eddie Jones gave me back in May before that England series and, 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 I, and I asked him at the time that, you know, in the time frame that he came into the England job, uh, you know, they'd just been bundled out of the World Cup. And you know the Six Nations was, was was only you know three months away. Mm. You know what what can you possibly turn around? And he and he said whenever you come into a new job, there's always fifty things that you need to fix, but you've only got time to fix three. And so the 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 issue very quickly becomes working out what those three things are. You know, what what the three things are that you can address that will actually have the biggest impact on the team. And um and and it's it's no. There's no formula for it. It's not. A, it's not a concrete thing. It's going to be a different three things from team to team, coach to coach, and uh, and and that's the sort of um, that's that's the the parallel I drew this week is that Michael Checker just hasn't got time to address every possible issue that went wrong on Saturday night, and so you know there probably is three things that they could work on that could have a have a bit of an impact, and the three I picked out defence is an is an obvious one, um, and, and that will. You know that would need to be fixed anyway, but that actually wasn't one of the three. I, I sort of I targeted ball carrying uh, and particularly making the gain line, um, the attacking breakdown and being able to keep the ball and the line out particularly. Mm. And the, and the, the sort of the rough flow on there is that the Wallabies weren't making the gain line um, for, for for most of the night, and and the gain line stat even by half time was something like. 39 times New Zealand crossed the game line to I think less than 20, maybe even less than 15 for the Wallabies. It was, you know, it was a huge disparity. And oh, so, wow. so, so, so every time they made contact with, with the All Blacks, they were already losing ground. Mm. And then on top of that, the All Blacks were slowing down the Australian ball. So they weren't winning their own breakdown ball. They were, they were having, they were being disrupted. So they're, so they're losing ground. They're not getting quick ball, which then then forces them to play, you know, play a lot deeper than they ever were. And it becomes self-fulfilling. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're already losing ground, but they're not making up the ground they've, they've even lost in the next run. So, you know, they, they're, they're losing ground by trying to go forward, if that makes sense. And so um, they're, they're, two, they're, they're two that very much go hand in hand. I threw the line out in there as well because I think that ties, ties in as well. If, you, if your set piece isn't going well, other things tend to fall away. And, and the All Blacks have never been a, a massive scrummaging team. They 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 scrummage to um, to restart the game essentially. They don't scrummage for penalties like you know England or even Australia did in the World Cup. Yeah, um, and, and like and like Northern Hemisphere teams, they 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 scrummage to get on with the game essentially. And so, but they do attack the line out, and uh, and, and and they gave they gave the Wallabies all sorts of curry in the line out in the, in the Rugby World Cup final and. From I think the first line out on Saturday night, it was quite clear that they were going to contest everything the Wallabies threw up because they knew they could. They had three genuine line out options, and they knew the Wallabies really only had two. And uh, Kieran Reid's the, the all that captain said post match in the press conference that you know there was no real strategy or science to it. They just sort of got up early. They they just got in front of them and jumped early, which 
you know, <laughs> that's pretty simple. It would have it been it would have been funny if it wasn't so scarily accurate. Yeah, so, yeah. Because Australia um, lost four lineouts and New Zealand yeah. lost none. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There was it might have even been more than that. I think, I think it might have even been five or six. Oh, dear. That, they managed that if they that if they didn't win outright, New Zealand they disrupted the, the the Wallabies, and that's the next best thing, obviously. So. Um, so, so line out was something that I think needs to be addressed, needs to be fixed, and it's something that the Wallabies need to win because if you get good solid set piece ball, then you can start, you know, you can start making the game line. You can then start, you know, dominating your own ruck ball. That you know, when you get quick ball, then that helps that helps the game line, and it all sort of flows on from there. Even in turn, then it means that the tactical kicking game doesn't have to come from so deep, um, and when, when you've already got a limited limited length to your kicking game like Bernard Foley does, you can't be giving away ball before you even get it. So, um, you know, they were the three that I sort of focused on. And there's – we got a, it got a fantastic response, um, you know, t- today. There was a lot of really good discussion around it. And there's a lot of other things that, that needed to be addressed and different people had different thoughts on what the three things should be. But um, it's just an interesting sort of a, um, a snapshot, I suppose. You can try and work out – what you can possibly try to work on that might have the biggest impact. And, um, and as I say, they, they don't have that long. The, the, the Wallabies are, uh, um, you know, depending on, on when people are listening to this, the Wallabies could already be in Wellington and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, games only, only a few days away. So uh, they've, that's got to be the thing. They just need to work out what they can tweak. Oh, I don't think there's any point in doing any, gra- any massive overhauls uh, because, you know, to, to develop new systems or something like that within a week, I think is probably a plan to fail. And, uh, and so likewise, I don't think there's any real point in, you know, they made 14 or 15 changes from, from, from the last test against England to, to the first letters. Like, I wouldn't suggest making 15 changes again, because I just think that's disruptive before you even start. So, yeah. Um, and, and you know, a, a few little things that you, that you change, like if you, if you get to a stronger line out, then that probably means that you are going to change a few players. And that's, that, that makes sense. But I wouldn't just be making, I certainly, certainly wouldn't be advocating, you know, mass change just for the sake of it. And so touching on the, the issues with the line out and trying to fix that, it, is that more a, a strategy thing or a personnel thing or is it a bit of both? It's, it's probably all of, all of that, Andrew. It's, um, Stephen Moore didn't have the best night throwing uh, in terms of hitting the mark and, mm-hmm. and that was and that was disappointing because he's his super rugby season in terms of line accuracy was pretty strong he was, he was throwing in the in the very high 80 percents but even even that sort of tailed off toward the end of the year like the, before the june break he was throwing sort of consistently around 92 94 percent accuracy but that sort of dipped to about 88 89 percent by the end of the season so okay. so so that sort of went off so he's having a little bit of issue hitting his targets, then then as I said before, because there was only Rob Simmons and to a lesser extent Kane Douglas as the only real options. And yes, they threw to Michael Hooper well, first line out of the night, which was a curious decision. Bizarre. Ben McCallum's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kane Douglas doesn't jump a lot. So the All Blacks knew all they had to do was just double team Rob Simmons essentially. And so, you know, as simple as it as as Kieran Reid made it sound, you know, we just got in front and jumped first. That's really all I had to do because if because Sam Whitelock at the back knew that if Kieran Reid couldn't get up first and couldn't get the win win outright, then Whitelock just got up and made it a contest with Simmons. And so mm. Simmons had a had a hell of a night um, in, in trying to in trying to win clear ball, and, and that really um, really disrupted the the the, the play. The, the Wallabies 
never got a chance to set a rolling ball. They, they even if they wanted to do that, they just never got a chance to win clean ball and and try and set that, and and that set them on the back foot, uh, no no doubt. Yeah, and one of the other things that you you've touched on there, and when we spoke about, is the the kicking side of things, and you know, not necessarily having anyone who has the depth in kicking. Is there, a, you know, an argument to, to bring in someone like a Reese Hodge? I know that he's only quite young yep. and inexperienced, but at least he can get the ball and you know, hoof it to the other end of the field. Yeah, look, he's, he's got a he's got a huge boot. He's probably got one of the biggest boots in Australia. Mm. Um, but they've got a bloke that they're playing on the wing who I think is probably the best fullback in Australia who's also got one of the biggest boots in, in, in the country in Dale Hale Petty. And um, it took them until about the 65th minute in that last test against England in June to, to work out that, hey, if we actually get him to kick, we might make more ground. And they didn't use him at all okay. on Saturday, Saturday night against the Bledisloe. And I, and I think... We're at the point now where Hale Petty needs to play fullback. Um, we're actually, actually actually at the point where I think Falao needs to play at outside centre, and that was probably probably dictated by by injuries to to some other options there as well from Saturday night. But it's not necessarily because I think Falao is the best outside centre in the country, but it's because I think Dane Hale Petty is the best fullback in the country, and he just needs to play that. They just need to use his kicking game, which which they've ignored today, and and I. Well, I scratch my head at that because, you know, why, why would you why would you play Reese Hodge in a team and not use his kicking game? Mm. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So, um, you know, whether it's bringing a new player in like Reese Hodge or, or whether you just you know play play Dane Hallett Petty where he's been so good this year for the Western Force, either of those I think would be would be good. But the risk there anyway is that, you know, if they're still having to play deep. Then you're not necessarily making up a lot of ground, are you? So yeah, exactly it's, right. It's got to, it, it all becomes self fulfilling, like I say. It's it, 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 everything sort of feeds into each other. And if they're not making, you know, the gain line, or they're not, um, uh, you know, they're not they're not controlling their own their own breakdown, their own um, you know their own attacking ball, then you know you don't really get an opportunity to clear out and uh, and, and and you know because you have to play at depth. So um, you know that's. That's but one area that they need to work on, obviously. Yeah, and and you know you you've said that you sort of you know wouldn't advocate for for lots of changes to to the lineup, but there's been a lot of calls for you know for guys like Stephen Moore and and, and Hooper yeah. to you know more to be dropped completely and, and Hooper to um, to sort of just sit on the bench. Are they are they knee jerk reactions or is that? Genuinely, something that is you know going to improve the the, the possibility of, of a more competitive performance. It's it's probably both, <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and that sounds like a bit of a cop out answer, but it's but it's probably both. The it's it's um you, you know as I said, Steve Moore didn't have the best night mm. in terms of line out throwing and his and his impact around the field. I think was was a little bit was a li- little bit limited to the point where. You know, when Tatafi Pilotta now came on, there was about 20, month, 20 minutes to go, you actually noticed him doing things. And and so, you know, you do sort of ask whether there needs to be a change there. I think, um, and going back to the earlier point about controlling the breakdown, I, I think we've reached the point where this, where this dual open cider um, experiment is, um, has, it's, it's gone past its, its, its lifespan, I think. Uh, I think we're... I think it's it's too much of a any possible gains that you're getting at the breakdown by playing Pocock and Hooper together. I think is is is, is overshadowed by losses at the at the lineout particularly. Yeah. Um. And and, in, and even in terms of in terms of ball carrying. So, 
I think the the thought, the idea of playing Hooper off the bench as like a you know last half hour finisher, I think has got a lot of merit. Um, it's it would actually be a bit of a rough call on on Hooper because I think he is consistently one of the best you know five or six players for the Wallabies every time they every time he plays. But I think we've got to I think Czech has got to sort of rethink how he constructs his team, and he can't just be picking the best players within the 15 he actually needs to pick the best 15 to start a game and if that means that you know Michael Hooper isn't quite in the best 15 even though he's you know maybe one of the best four or five players on the field Mm. I think that's just a hard call that perhaps needs to be made yep and and look moving off the the field and onto the the coaching side of things obviously Mick Byrne was brought in as the kicking coach Stephen Larkham has recently sort of started as the the forwards coach and then checker himself like one of the things that I heard from from checker was that he said after the game that he didn't rev the boys up enough now you'd like to think that the, the strategy and the tactics that the team has is probably going to be more crucial to to a victory than, you know, getting a bit of a pep talk before the start of the game. But is that coaching uh, group, are, are they still working out how best to work together and what the best sort of, like, strategy is for the team on field as well? Yeah, there, there probably is elements to that. I mean, yeah, Steve, Steve Larkham the, the, is the attacking coach, but and he's obviously the Brumbies, Brumbies head coach as well. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think having having a Wallabies coach also being a super rugby coach is an ideal because it you know essentially means that the the planning and strategizing and all that doesn't really begin in earnest until super rugby finishes and you know had had the Brumbies have gone two weeks deeper then then you know there's two weeks less planning the Larkham would have got to do in terms of their attack mm. um, you know Mick, Mick Byrne was brought in as a skills coach and he was his appointment is going to be long term where where his um, the benefit of Mick Byrne is actually something that I hope we don't notice because it means that there's been a gradual build up. And he said himself that some um, some of the some some of what the All Blacks can do now so naturally took them years to learn. And, yep. and he I, I can I can remember him talking about Sam Whitelock funnily enough saying that when he first when you know first joined, first came in contact with Sam Whitelock he basically couldn't pass. From left to right, uh, he was one of those, you know, naturally right-handed players. So he could throw from right to left with no, no problem at all. But he had real trouble passing left to right, and it took, you know, just you know, repetition, repetition, repetition to to build that skill up. And and it took, you know, eighteen months probably. So wow. So the the, the, the Mick Byrne influence, as I say, is something that I hope we don't really notice because it's got to be a gradual thing. It's got to be a a, a slow burn um, and. What I do like is that he's going to be working, you know, around the country and working with other coaches uh, in Super Rugby and even at the NRC. He's already spoken to the NRC coaches um, only last week, so uh, I, th- I think that's a it's a like a higher level strategic type um, type thing. But but there's no doubts there can still be improvements in terms of tactical kicking and things like that, and that's where he can have a little impact. So, but yeah, you're right, and 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 checkers. Checker's uh, you know ad- admission straight afterwards that, that you know he's got to take responsibility for not preparing right. I mean that's that's classic deflection. He said exactly the same thing after the World Cup final, and yep. you know it's it's a it's it's the it's a way of taking the heat off the players realistically. Yeah, um, exactly right. You know, he's he's tried it. 
you know, several times before. I think we're becoming used to it. I think we're starting to see through it, quite obviously. Um, and, you know, it's it's admirable, but, you know, you do you have to wonder whether, you know, they, it does need a bit of a rocket, you know, post-match or as, at, 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 you know, as they run out or at halftime or something like that because, uh, you know, whatever he has been trying obviously isn't quite getting the message through. So maybe he needs to go back to the... You know, swinging the golf club and the, uh, you know, the the, the the tomahawk and the block of wood like we saw in the Waratahs dressing room at one stage. So, you know, maybe that would be a go, sight to see. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we need to go back to his to his uh, to his Waratahs roots there for a bit. And obviously, the the game this Saturday, we're not necessarily expecting anything, you know, dramatically different. Uh, no, sort of certainly not Australia overturning the result. But is it a matter of Australia have actually gone backwards since the like, since the World Cup, or are they are the All Blacks just that much better? Yeah, again, it's 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 probably both, and 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 even just thinking about the Wallabies in isolation, you have to wonder, you know, was the was the World Cup an overachievement, and mm. and and if and if so, does that mean what we're seeing now is back about where the Wallabies are, or you know, or were the Wallabies actually a pretty decent team by the end of last year, and they have genuinely gone backwards this year? I, I'm not actually sure which answer of which of those two things is is right. Um, you okay. know, it's. The, the the argument again is that there's probably elements of, of both to it. I think they were a pretty decent team last year, um, you know, and, and they have gone backwards. But I also think it's probably true that 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 last that the World Cup result was probably was overachieving. Um, yep. And when you consider that going into the tournament, there was more than a few pundits were, you know, were, were worried and, and, and were predicting the Wallabies wouldn't even get out of the, out of the pool round to. to to, to make the final was a, was a pretty decent achievement. So, oh, it was incredible. Yeah, yeah. And then, so then, then think about the think about the All Blacks. What they've what they've always done well is that is that the system is there and and, and is is paramount. Um, so it doesn't matter, you know, who they bring in from which Super Rugby team and how many games they've gone under their belt. They already know what the All Blacks system is and what the expectations are of them. And and you know, a, lo- a little bit was made last week about the fact that. Uh, you know, they've lost 800 test caps worth of experience with, you know, McCaw and Carter and Conrad Smith and you know, Martin Onu and all those guys who, mm. who finished up after the World Cup. Yep. But in reality, the guys that replaced them, and we're thinking of, you know, Bowden Barron, Aaron Cruden and, um, um, you know, Sam Kane, those guys, they've already played 30 tests. Yeah. You know, they've already played 30 or 40 tests. So they've they've been in the environment. They know what the expectation is. They know that, you know, one day when I do get to pull on the number 10 jersey, this is how I have to play and this is what our patterns are. And so, you know, what we saw there on Saturday night was, you know, not wasn't Bowden Barrett coming of age. It was Bowden Barrett finally getting the opportunity he's, he's you know, he's been building up for for, for five years. And, he, and he's, had, and he's had that game plan just drilled into yeah. him yeah. from from yeah. years and years of, of training and watching. Yeah. 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 Well, they're, they're, so their they're, they're system... Yeah, you know, the, the the system is is first and foremost, and mm. as, as I say, it doesn't matter that they've bought it for the, for this test this week. They've been hit with injuries themselves. They've bought in five uncapped players essentially, but those five guys have all had experience in you know the Maori All Black team, or they've played under twenties or something like that, or you know they've had good success in Super Rugby. So they've already had exposure to the system in one shape, you know, in, in various shape or form. So um, it's a it's it's hard to look at the New Zealand situ- situation with anything but envy because, you know, what they do is uh, is just so 
so well laid out and, and they do it so well. And touching on that, and also you talked about the the National Rugby Championship earlier, is that's kicking off this weekend. And is there enough of, I guess, you know, quality players being able to to push through from the you know the, the lower ranks to be able to to have guys sitting on the sidelines and watching and learning? I noticed that, and I'm not from a, a rugby background, so the the National Rugby Championship starting this week when the Super Rugby season has already finished, I would have thought that, that it would be a nice you know sort of like reserves competition almost to put an AFL spin on it. it that, but that's not how it works in in the rugby no. land, is it? No, no, no. It's 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 very much about um, a continuation of the pathway. So, so the, the 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 club competitions around the country run, you know, from March through till you know late July, early August in this case. And so then, the the NRC is an opportunity for the very best of the club players in Brisbane, Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne, Perth to then be recognised and actually and, and actually be tested at the next level because they don't necessarily get a lot of opportunity to do that. And so then they get the opportunity to you know, to go into a semi-professional environment, get a bit of a taste of what professional rugby might be, and you know training you know, training on set, on set days and professional programs and all that sort of thing, and, and you know recovery, travel, all those little things that don't necessarily seem like much, but you know it can often bring the really good club players undone because they're not used to you know the travel workloads and recoveries and things like that. So. Um, it's it's a really big learning curve for them, but it's a really important one for them. But equally, it's it gives the guys in Super Rugby squads who didn't necessarily get a lot of Super Rugby time. It gives them really important game time, mm-hmm. um, and and it gives the guys who are just outside the Wallaby squad an opportunity to try and play themselves in. Um, and and even likewise, the guys in the Wallaby squad who are outside the the, the match day twenty three. And you mentioned Reese Hodge there. He he didn't play on, on the weekend. He needs to keep playing at a decent level so that if there is an injury or or there is a you know need for, for for selection change, he's actually been playing rugby and hasn't just been training for six weeks. So yep. um, it's a it's a really important it's it's deliberately timed, um, but it's a really important cog in the in the developmental pathways. It's the it's it's it is the next step between club rugby around the country and Super Rugby, uh, and we've found over the last oh, five or six years that. That that gap has only been increasing. That as Super Rugby has got, uh, you know, bigger and better and faster, that that the average club player just cannot keep up. And so then we we need that that missing gap in Australia. New Zealand's got their uh, their, their their NPC, the Mitre Ten Cup, as it's called this year. Um, South Africa have had their Curry Cup for 130 odd years or something mm-hmm. like that. So you know they've they've got that same thing. They they're played at the same time. The Curry Cup's on now. The NPC in New Zealand's on now as well. And and it's doing exactly the same job for them. So, it's a really good, really good competition. Um, eight teams scattered around the around the t- around the country. Two up in Queensland, three based out of uh, out of out of Sydney, and then uh, Canberra, Melbourne, Perth again. So, strong Super Rugby squad tie-ins mm-hmm. you know, around the country, and um, and 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 it's it's working already. Two seasons of the NRC, we've seen upwards of oh, I think we're pushing up to somewhere up near 50 guys have gone on to, to debut in Super Rugby now. So it's, okay, that's it's, good. It's starting, it's starting to have an effect already. Uh, I think after season one, it was maybe 14 or 15. This year, this year alone, there was, there was you know, more than 30 
guys uh, guys to boot in Super Rugby, which is fantastic. So it really is helping, I guess, the national side yeah. transition from you know the the last generation through this period of you know not great performances to to hopefully come out the other end with with a competitive team, you know, in the lead up to the next World Cup, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And, and again, it's going to take, uh, you know, it's, 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 we're in season three, it's going to take, you know, a, a few good years to, to, for it to be a, re, a really, um, a re, really better down. I like, think like it's pretty well better down now, but it's, it's going to take a few years to, you know, so that it's, it's, you know, it's well known, it's well received, it, it's, you know, it's running well, the clubs are, you know, used to how they're operating. It, it's only a short season as well. It's only going to be, uh, nine weeks all up, so seven seven rounds, and then you know semi-finals, final. So it's a it's a short, sharp type thing. You know, you've, the team's going to have to um, start really well, play play well, start well, and, and and carry on with that. You're not going to be able to, you know, drop your first couple of games and then come home strong because if you drop your first couple of games, you're probably already out of the out, out of the runs. So, yeah, yeah. Um, it's Which a, is probably it's, a good it's thing. A really important comp. Uh, you know, have, having that sort of almost cutthroat uh, mentality running through the whole season makes make sure that the people that the players are actually playing at that high intensity level, and that's what yeah. you want for for the next levels up. Yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. And we've seen in the last couple of years that they, they tend to be dominated by the the squads that have got pretty decent, you know, Super Rugby backings, and you know, particularly Canberra and Canberra and Brisbane City last year. Um, Brisbane City went through undefeated last year. Won it. They won both the, the, the competition both years so far. And 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 a large chunk of that Brisbane City team is now essentially the the Queensland Reds. So, um, you know, it's uh, yeah. The, and, and likewise, the the Canberra side is essentially the Brumbies. Melbourne's essentially the Rebels. The uh, the Perth side is essentially the Western Force. So, the the New South Wales teams are a little bit of a disadvantage there. But uh, the you know the 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 the, the Perception's always been that you know Sydney, the Sydney competition has always been the strongest, produces the most amount of players, and mm. uh, there were there were four, we've actually shared a team. There were four Sydney-based teams, but we've, okay. we've shared a Sydney team going into this year, and and I think that's going to make things stronger because the, I think we quickly worked out over two seasons that there probably isn't enough depth to go to four Sydney-based teams. I think cutting that back to back to three is is a lot better. The Waratahs are a lot more invested, I think, this year, which is which can only be a good thing, and. Um, yeah, hopefully we'll uh, we'll, we'll be uh, we're we'll talking in a few weeks' time about a, a really you know, really strong and a, and a really um, uh, competitive NRC competition. Absolutely, and just before we wrap things up, obviously there's the the game coming up against New Zealand on the weekend, but then there will be matches against South Africa and I guess a growing Argentinian side as well. Are we are the, are the Wallabies a chance at you know sort of? Finishing second in the the championship, like knocking off the South Africans and the Argentinians. Well, I, I certainly had that thought this time of this, this time last week. But, um, <laughs> but, but South Africa and South Africa and Argentina played an absolute ripper of a game That's uh, right. on, yeah, the, week, that on the weekend in, in South Africa. Um, uh, South Africa only won it on the bell, basically. Mm. Argentina were actually up with a with only a, only a few minutes to go. So. They uh, they play off again this weekend back in Argentina. Um, it wouldn't at all surprise me if if Argentina get up there. And 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 look, I think I think Australia is going to have a hard time winning, uh, you know, in South Africa and in Argentina. Whereas in previous years they've been able to do that. I think this year they might have a hard time doing that. Um, yeah, Argentina can be a particularly tough place to, to play. It's a it's a hostile crowd. Um, you know, things 
things rarely go well in terms of you know, logistics. There's often you know, there's often bag baggage goes missing, and you know buses are late, and all those little things that you know again you you think they should be able to cope with, but if it if it just throws their routines out a little bit, it can have an effect. So um, I, I actually think now that 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 Argentina and South Africa and and the Wallabies are actually going to be pretty evenly matched. Okay. So you know they'll probably they'll probably win games at home, but might just drop them away. And I think whichever of those three teams can can snare an away win, then that's probably what's what uh, what sews up second spot. Excellent. All right. Well, Brett, thank you very much for joining us here on a sporting discussion. I hope that we can watch the entirety of the Australia versus New Zealand game this weekend without our hands covering our <laughs> eyes. And that would be uh, that. That would be wonderful, please. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, we we would chat to you a little bit later and to see how the national rugby championship has gone, and, and hopefully we'll be able to celebrate a, a little bit more success for the Wallabies. Yeah, indeed. That'd be great. Thanks, guys. Cheers. AJ, the Prime Minister of Japan has emerged from a Super Mario tunnel, which (laughs) signifies the end of the Rio Olympics. What a stirring cultural moment that was, a stirring Japanese cultural moment. A beautiful handover to Tokyo for, for the 2020 Games. But the 2016 Olympics, there were high hopes for Australia, particularly in the pool, as there always is. We had a number of world champions and world record holders. There was expectations of going better than the medal count in London. How did that all pan out? Well, we had a lot of world champions, world champions, a lot of record setters, and a lot of legends in their own lunchboxes, Andrew. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. What? You're not happy with how people went? No, I don't blame them. I blame them, whoever's went into the game saying, oh, we're going to win X number of this, X number of that, and X number of that. So basically everyone. Yeah, pretty much. Group failure. Group failure. They said it was hashtag one team, and as a, as a, as a unit they failed pretty spectacularly. That was part of the issue as well. It wasn't just hashtag one team. The swimmers took it upon themselves to change their own thing to hashtag our team. Well, in the in the defence of the dolphins, mm. that that that's been their motto for quite some time. Yeah, well, you can defend them all you like, but <laughs> they were. I think they they were on a hide into nothing really after the London Olympics, where. There was a lot of issues with the swimmers basically being the ringleaders of all of the bad behaviour that had been going on. And Kate Campbell started the Olympics brilliantly. She anchored the 4 by 100 metre freestyle relay home for gold. And everyone thought, here we go, she's going to dominate as the world champion and world record holder should. Unfortunately, it didn't go all to plan for her. No, not much went to plan. Um, she, Kate, unfortunately bombed out in the hundred meter mm. freestyle herself. Uh, we had the uh, oh, Cam McAvoy in the fifty meter. Sorry, and sorry, meter. folks. We're looking at a list of you know, underachievers in front of us, and it's a lot longer than our list of 
Achievers. Uh, so I got a little bit lost there. Sorry. All right. So, yeah, Cam McAvoy was expected to, to win both the 50 and the 100 freestyle. He, he didn't do anything. However, Kyle Chalmers came through to win the 100 metre freestyle. Which oh, was Kyle Chalmers, the footballer. <laughs> That's right, yes yeah. Last week the AFL claiming him in their tweet Actually, just while we're here Dave Brown uh, did contact us last week And said that the Adelaide Advertiser uh, Put an eight-page spread in About Chalmers winning <laughs> the gold medal And he said that most of that eight pages Was about his football And his famous dad who played football And all Bless. sorts of football stuff Love uh, it Thanks again, Dave Outside of the pool There was Chloe Esposito Winning gold in the modern pentathlon oh, I've been... Fan of hers since she started, whenever she started. You've been a fan of hers ever I've since you heard her. her name after the gold medal presentation. I was a fan of hers the instant I saw she was going to win. Catherine Skinner, the shooting gold medalist. Tom Burton in the sailing. Kim Brennan in the, in the rowing. The magnificent women's rugby sevens team. That was great. And, and then three gold medals in the pool. That was at the, the Australian's gold Count. Funnily enough, they got as many golds here as they did in uh, London when everyone was running up and down, knocking on people's doors, whopped up on all sorts of things. (laughs) Is the issue here that the expectations don't actually match reality? World champions and world record holders, surely our expectations are allowed to be that they should win? Well, they, you expect someone who is a world champion to win, but you are pretty disrespectful to the other eight, uh, other seven people in that pool, and the other or on that field or in that modern pentathlon leg. Eleven thousand athletes from over two hundred countries yeah. at the Olympic Games. So, is is a are, are we a little bit sort of like overzealous then with our predictions I and think a little bit disrespectful, as you say? Oh, disrespectful might be a strong word, but I'll keep using it. Yeah. Because I think we were uh, – arrogance not a, not a good word either, but I'll keep using that too. Yeah. I think any prediction of gold uh, medals has to have some arrogance to it because yep. you're expecting to win. And you do have these people who have delivered in, on the international stage before and you would expect they do it again. What you are disregarding, though, is the giant strides made by other swimmers, other athletes around the world. And we saw that in this Olympics, especially with uh, an athlete from Kosovo you spoke about a little little yep. while ago. Uh, there was other nations who won their first ever medals or, you know, of any colour. There's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of, what do you want to call it? It's catching up. The world's catching up. And yep. we're on the way down. It's just, that's, that's how it is. And actually... Uh, Funny you mentioned that. That actually literally is how it has been forever f- until these Olympics for someone who has hosted the Olympics. I, once again, I did some graphing of the the medals, the medal tallies of nations. And this Australia, is, this is an especially good looking graph. Here. <laughs> the Australian uh, medal tally peaked in 1956 and then dropped back down and then it peaked again in 2000 when Australian last hosted the Olympics and has dropped back down since then. And that's consistent with every single nation. When you host the Olympics, you pump a lot of money in because you identify the sports where you think you can do well and because you don't want to be seen you know, as a failure at your own Olympics. London, or sorry, Great Britain, are the only nation to have ever improved on their medal tally the the Olympics following the year they've hosted. And they are pumping 
many, 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 many millions of pounds into it through a, an organised national lottery, the sole purpose of which is to fund Olympic and sporting uh, endeavours. Really? Yep, and it works. It does? Uh, yeah. John Major, who former Prime Minister John Major, um, started it. National Lottery, I think it's called. Okay. Yeah. That's... Whereas here in Australia, we decentralised our centre of excellence, if you want to call it, the AIS, uh, and gave we took funding off the AIS and gave that to the individual sports bodies. Oh, uh, and yes. I think, I don't have it in front of me, but it's something they adjusted the amount of funding that a sport got depending on the expectation or chance that they were going to medal at the Olympic Games. And then funding then, as I understand, is also subsequently linked to performance at World Championships and Olympic Games. So if you're, Correct. Not, if you're not putting the money in initially because of the expectation, then if obviously they're not going to be able to perform as well as if you had have put money in. And it's just a, a self-fulfilling prophecy or a, or a cycle. A cycle. Ooh, that works. Yes. One thing where you, we were talking about, you know, people being brazen enough to suggest that we might win 15 gold medals. One mm. of those is someone who... Well, people wanted to be top five in the medal count. Yes. Yep. Which was always fairly unrealistic. Yeah, I, I think that was actually in the Crawford report, which yeah. was put out after... Uh, a recent Olympics. Yeah. But one person who has borne the brunt of a lot of the vitriol has been the chef de mission, Kitty Chiller. I was on the anti-Kitty bandwagon when she got rid of Nick Kyrgios and Bernard Tomic. And since then, I have been pro-Kitty. I'm all about it. I, I like what she's done. The hardline stance, I think that... Yeah, it's, the, worked, it's worked wonders. The results have spoken for themselves. Well, we've, we only had one person held up at gunpoint. Yeah, so we, only had, we only had nine people arrested. We only had two people banned from the closing ceremony and then a humiliating backflip to let one of them back in. Other than that, it's been an administrative triumph. I think that there's been so much media about, uh, about the, the chef demission. It's been completely and utterly over the top. It's, they're a team manager. They're doing their job. They're putting processes in place to make sure the safety of the athletes is paramount. And I think that under very, very trying circumstances, she has done as best she could. And... I, I just think that one of the major things that people took her to task on was the Emma McKeon and Josh Palmer banning from the closing ceremony. People saying, oh, you know, they were completely different um, uh, different circumstances. They both shouldn't have been pu- punished differently. And I completely agree they should have been punished differently. Josh Palmer should have received more of a punishment, but they both broke the same rule that had been put in place for their own safety. So, jeez. Yeah. Let me put it to you this way. Okay. Kitty Chell has been around the Olympic team for a while. She was deputy chef de mission before. Uh, she was made chef de mission in 2013, mm-hmm. if, you, if you knew that. I don't know how many people knew that, but that's how it is, folks. Let me ask you some questions here, Andrew. Oh, no. Coming out of London, it was all controversy, drama, and all sorts of problems. Yes. The swimming team was running its own race. They didn't perform as they were supposed to perform. Kitty was going in there to clean house. How did that go in Rio? There were no still knocks parties. There was no disruption by players, by athletes. There was no initiation ceremonies where people were, were sort of degraded and felt belittled. All I heard was the swimmers ran their own race, didn't perform as well as they did and acted like they were their own crew. 
Right, here's question two. Okay. Uh, we, we, when I say we, I mean Kitty, yeah. uh, <laughs> predicted a huge number of medals and uh, a performance that would get us in the top five. Now, obviously, that's not just her spruiking that. No, no. That's obviously come down from on high. Mm-hmm. How did that go? Not well. Yes, fair enough. <laughs> um, uh, team behaviour and team unity was supposed to be one of the big things that uh, Kitty was going to crack down on. Uh, there was to be no tomfoolery, no uh, drunkenness, no being intoxicated at all. There was even talk of breath testing athletes as they returned to the village early on. Uh, whether that was a media blow up or not, I don't know. But all right, so we could have expected the most well behaved. Uh, high-performing and focused Australian team in many, many, many Olympiads. How did that go? Again, not necessarily ideal, but I'm still on the, the on the kitty side with what she put in place was exactly what she needed to do. And when people did cross the line, they they were suitably punished. And and look, then that punishment was climbed down on. Oh, uh, that was big. That was a yeah, the a media backlash. Saying, oh, it's not fair. Oh, so it's the media. No, the God, no, 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 no. Personally, I think that it's the in terms of the performance, it's the individual athletes who take all of the the credit for their good performance and the blame for for their poor performance. One of one of your favourite athletes, Michelle. Jenicky, Michelle Jenicky. How did how did she uh, arrive at the Olympics? What sort of condition was she in? Well, her coach has come out somewhat astonishingly, astonishingly to all of us and said that she arrived at the Olympics out of shape mm. and not ready for comp- not ready for elite competition. Yep. And you could argue that the swimmers were the same because they had qualified months prior to the game and were basically just you know training and tapering. Where swimmers around the world, particularly I'll use the US as an example, they have their Olympic trials like two, three weeks out from the actual games themselves. Mm, yep. Now that's not Kitty's fault. That's a it's an administrative fault. Yes. That I'm, I think they're looking at now to uh, sort out once and for all. Definitely with the swimming, they are. Yeah. Yeah. It strikes me as strange doing it that way. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> maybe it's so it can fit on the TV schedule over here. Well, yeah, we are the only nation that televises the... Live swimming in prime time. Yeah, the, and yeah. Yeah, the Olympic qualifiers. I, I think that that's a bit silly. But look, it's a massive undertaking to, to host an Olympic Games. And I think that Rio somehow managed to, to get through it without too many issues. Well, not that we saw. Not that we saw, exactly. The pool turned... Green, the diving pool, uh, that's, you know, that's not ideal. I think the dangers were outside of any Olympic venues, which is why Kitty would have been so hell-bent on making sure no idiot went off and being a fool. And did a Ryan Lochte <laughs> or a Josh Palmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that brings me to a a suggestion. We won't go into this too much because we're, we're coming to the end of the episode, but... I have a theory or a suggestion that there should only be one Olympic city that should host every single Olympics. It's purpose-built and it means that there's no ridiculous bidding process that costs heaps of countries heaps and heaps and heaps of dollars. There is no uh, potential for for corruption in the uh, bidding process. There'll be no issues with stadiums not being built, with accommodation not being built. It is a we build a purpose-built city or village with the stadiums required in close proximity. It can be used for other uh, things throughout the, well, the four years. Can I just say something? You may. Sydney stands ready. 
<laughs> yes, I'm sure that if that was floated... Sydney stands ready. That's all you ever read any Olympics time. That brings us to the end of an absolutely jam-packed edition of a sporting discussion. We're starting to fill these out a bit. I think we might need to do a bit of do a bit of jogging and trim these back a bit. Trim them back. Yeah. Well, this episode had a, a really, really good interview with Brett McKay from the raw.com.au and ABC Grandstand. Thank you very much, Brett, for for your thoughts. If anyone out there has thoughts on an issue that you would like us to talk about next week, hit us up on Twitter at ASD underscore podcast or facebook.com.com slash a sporting discussion. We will reply. Don't worry. Tweets or comments will be signed off with either AJ for him, AJ Mithen, or AD for me, Andrew Donison. Tell your friends to subscribe to a sporting discussion on iTunes. You can listen on Wooshka, who are the lovely people who host our audio. What else have we got? Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Player FM. We're everywhere. 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 In, speaking of everywhere, AJ, you will be on RugbyLeagueHub.com again this week with your three things to look out for. Yes, going live tomorrow, uh, How to Spot a Liar. Is the one of the topics? Oh, I like it. I, Should I, be good fun. I look forward to to reading that. Will there be a live blog on the raw dot com dot au this no, weekend? This weekend, I'm going to be enjoying the Raiders going for nine straight. Fair enough. Fair enough. I will be on Triple R on Monday morning with the Breakfasters at seven fifteen a.m. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We will be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>